And Lord, that's our prayer right now, that you would speak to us. We've come this morning, we love singing, we love worshiping you, but we want to hear your voice. Lord, my voice is not worth listening to, but your spirit penned these words through your servants so many years ago. And now we ask that you would speak once again as we open your holy word. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of being your people, for the privilege of living in a country where we are free to worship you. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are in very, very hard, hard places. We continue to pray for the broken lives in Israel and in Gaza, in Ukraine and in Russia. And Father, we ask that you would protect the innocent, but we ask especially that your children who love you and know you, Lord Jesus, would be lights of hope in the midst of hopelessness that is all around them. We pray that you would give them opportunities to share the hope that they have in Jesus, the hope that life is not just what this earth offers, but there's an eternity that's in front of every single one of us and that that eternity is only secured by what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Please give your children opportunities to share that Jesus died for their sins and that because they have asked him to forgive them, having taken their punishment for them, that they now can live. So Father, now as we open your word, please open our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So good to be together this morning. Looks like fall is coming. It's getting colder. We had a wonderful day yesterday. Some of you were here as we had a trunk or treat in the, the parking lot right behind me here, and probably over a thousand people, uh, visitors from our neighborhood coming and being able to just love on them and, uh, and provide for the children a safe place to do trick-or-treating. Thank you for all of you, the huge number of you that put trunks together and uh, participated in so many ways to help make yesterday such a good opportunity just for us to love on our neighborhood. This morning as we begin, we're still in Hebrews chapter 11, making our way through this amazing chapter that talks about people of faith and an example for us, and we want to continue to review together the verses that we're trying to memorize as a family. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, and then 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. So they'll be on the screen if you want to read them with us, but let's say them together. If you've, if you've got them mostly memorized, do your best to just say them by memory. Let's say them together. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Oh, that we would understand that truth. 
that the things that are unseen are eternal. We get so caught up in what we see with our eyes, but God made all of this out of nothing. And Jesus said, I am returning to my Father, and I am going to prepare a place for you. Those of us who put our faith in Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, that the sinless Lamb of God, never having sinned, God himself come and dwelling among us, taking our punishment, the punishment we deserve, which is death, and he took it in the most hideous way. But he took it for you and he took it for me. And as his father said, I've so loved the world, they've sent my only son, that whoever would believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life because, not just because we believe in Jesus, but because he died for us. We trust what he did for us. When we do that, we begin to realize that what we see is transient, but it's the unseen that's eternal. And we want to live for that. We want to live in the present in a very real world in a way that always keeps the eternal in mind. So, Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, if you could open them in the seat in front of you, there are Bibles in some of those. It's page 1008. I forget the page if it's in the large print version in front of you, but Hebrews chapter 11. We have reached this morning verse 32 as we make our way through this amazing picture of faithful people of God. As you're opening your Bibles, there's a story told of a family's home that began to burn. It began to burn on the ground floor, and the father was able to get out of the house, but his young son was not able to get out that was burning on the bottom, and he climbed up top, and then the flames started to come up, and he managed to get up onto the roof. But as he got onto the roof, it was night. He couldn't see anything, and the, the smoke was starting to billow around him. His father was down below outside, and his father was yelling, jump, jump, I'll catch you. And the little boy kept listening, and he heard his dad again, jump, jump, I'll catch you. And the little boy says, but daddy, I can't see you. And his daddy says, but I can see you, and that's all that matters. That is what it's like for us. There is so much in our world we don't understand. We don't see the future. We, everything is so clouded and so confused to us, but our Father in heaven sees it all perfectly, and He asks us to trust Him. He asks us to have faith that what He has said is true, that He will catch us, that when we trust in Jesus, He will forgive us. I love what Augustine said so many centuries ago about faith. He said, God does not expect us to submit our faith to him without reason. But the very limits of our reason make faith necessary. There's so much that we do not know. So God wants us to use our reason, but we do not know the future. We do not know what we cannot see. And the very limits of our reason is the reason we need faith. John G. Machen a famous theologian from Princeton University of about a century ago. He's the one who founded Westminster Seminary as well. He said this, and I love it. It, it. Seminary students still study his work. Extremely intelligent theologian. But listen to what he says. The more we know of God, 
the more we unreservedly will trust him. The greater our progress in theology, the simpler and more childlike will be our faith. The more we know about theology and about doctrine, about what God has told us in Scripture, the more simple and childlike will be our faith. We trust Him and trust Him wholly. You see, these verses we look at this morning teach us that God delights in taking weakness and turning it into strength, and He does that through faith. Faith turns weakness into strength. In these verses, I hope you've got your Bibles open, Hebrews chapter 11. This is God's Word. We want to know what God has said to us. We're going to read verses 32 to 35, the beginning of 35, but in verse 34, right in the middle of verse 34 is a phrase that is central to this whole thought, and it's this phrase in the middle of verse 34, these people were made strong out of weakness. So as we read these verses, think about these people, all of these people were made strong out of weakness. Verse 32, let's begin. Let me read, you follow along. And what more shall I say? For some would, fall, some would fail me, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Strength comes out of weakness when there's faith. He begins by saying, the writer inspired by the Holy Spirit, what more shall I say? So much has been said as we've studied this chapter of Hebrews. The unseen is more real than the seen. Hebrews chapter 1, chapter 11, verses 1 to 3. Faith in, impacts every single aspect of our lives, that next paragraph. Faith always looks forward, looks forward to the reward God has for us. Faith leads people, but it, it leads, leaders lead by trusting in God, not themselves. And we need to have faith together as God's people, and God works powerfully when we walk together in faith. He says, now what more should I say? So much has already been said. He lists in verse 32 six names. Four of them are judges. One is a king, King David. One is a prophet priest, Samuel. And then he goes on from there and he mentions people who lived by faith and he never says their names. And that's important. You see, it's not their names that matter. It's what God has done through them that matters. And so the names of individuals begin to disappear. As God wants us to see, it's not about you. It's not about your fame. It's not about how people remember you. It's what I can do through weak people. But here's what's important. God knows all of those names that are unmentioned here, and they're in the hall of faith. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God knows your name. 
And you may feel insignificant, and you may feel like you don't have much to offer to anybody, but if you will walk by faith, trusting in Him for what He can do through you, He knows your name just like all of these individuals in verses 33 down to 35. They're mentioned, but we're not given their names. Your role, my role, is to trust Him. You see, God delights in using needy people who by faith allow Him to do what only He can do so that only He can receive the glory. God delights in using weak and insignificant people who have faith so that He can do mighty things, so that He can do what only He can do, so that only He can receive the glory. That's why He delights in using people like you and me. So let's look at the illustrations that he gives. That key phrase in verse 34 is illustrated in all of these verses. What more shall I say? Verse 32, for time would fail me, me to tell of Gideon. He doesn't tell these stories. He just mentions some names, and then he even stops mentioning names. Many of us know the history of Gideon from the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Gideon lived during the time when Israel was under the thumb, under the oppressive control of the Midianites. The Midianites would disappear, would allow the Israelites to plant all of their fields and to till and to work those fields, but just before the harvest, the Midianites, the Bible says, would swarm in, almost like locusts. They would overwhelm the place and they would take all the harvest away. And so, in Judges chapter 5, we find Gideon hiding in a wine press, but trying to thresh some grain there that he's pulled out of the field early, and he's trying to do it. He is frightened. He was af he's afraid of all of these Midianites who are coming back into the land to take all the harvest. The angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, and he says to Gideon, go in the might of yours and save Israel from the land of Midian. Am I not sending you? And listen to Gideon's response. Verse 15, Judges chapter 6, And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is weakest in Manasseh. He was from the tribe of Manasseh. He says, I've got the smallest clan in the whole tribe, the weakest one. And I am the least in my father's house. God loves to use insignificant, weak people to do what only he can do, so only he can receive the glory. The Lord said to Gideon, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midians as one man. Gideon does obey God. It's a fairly long story, but he calls, uh, calls out people of Israel to come fight. 22,000 people show up, and God says to him, it's too many. If you go to fight with all these people, you're going to take the glory. Ask all of them, anyone who's afraid, you're free to go home. 12,000 go home. He's left with 10,000 men. God says, Gideon, it's too many. Go down to Herod's Spring. Herod's Spring is still there in Israel. Some of us have been there. We've, we've seen it. It's a beautiful spring that comes right out of the rock and then flows through this beautiful little, now it's a park in Israel. Gideon takes his 10,000 men down to this spring. They are desperately thirsty. From there, they could look out into the valley in front of them and see 
thousands of Midianites who had encamped out there because that's where all the harvest was. And at this little spring, God says, have them all take a drink. And anyone who puts his mouth down and just laps out of the water that, with their tongue, send them home. If they cup the water with their hands and bring it to their mouth, keep them. 10,000 men, only 300 cup the water. God says, now I'm ready to use you with only 300 against thousands of Midianites. And you know the story, how God delivered the Midianites. God loves to do what only He can do, so only He can get the glory, and so He uses weak and insignificant people. What more can I say, the writer says? You could talk about Gideon, or you could talk about Barak. Now, many of us who read our Old Testaments don't know the story of Barak very well. Barak lived during the time when Deborah was the judge over Israel. And there was a certain king called Jabin who was the king of Canaan, and he had subdued the Israelites. God allowed that to happen because of their sin. Deborah was the judge, and Deborah calls Barak and says, bring an army. God wants you to go fight against this, this man and his key commander, whose name is Sisera. And so Barak says to Deborah, and it's, it's fascinating, he says, I will go, but only if you go with me. If you will not go, I won't go. Deborah responds to him, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. There's the key phrase. It will not lead to your glory. God wants to do what only he can do, so only he can get the glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera, the commander of the army, into the hand of a woman. Now, we think it's into the hand of Deborah because God goes with Deborah and Barak, and Barak is able to demolish the army of Sisera. But Sisera runs. Sisera takes off running, and he runs and runs and runs and runs. And while his army is being decimated, he finally makes his way to a certain tent out in the middle of nowhere, a tent of a nomad. And he goes into that tent, and he asks the lady whose name is Jael. He says, can you please just give me something to drink? I am I'm so exhausted. She gives him some milk, and he says, can you hide me here? They're coming after me. She lays him down on the floor of her tent, covers him with something like a rug. And he says, will you stand at the door? If they come, tell them I'm not here. She goes out to the door. She gets a tent peg and puts it through his temple while he's sleeping underneath the rug. What did Deborah say? This will not lead to your glory, Barak. Instead, it will be, the, be to the, the people will sing about a woman. And here's what they sing. The next chapter of Judges, most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of, of tent-dwelling women most blessed, a woman that we would never have known of. God takes weak people, Barak, Deborah, and a young lady living in a tent and does what only he can do so that only he will receive the glory. The next name we have there is Samson, and most of us know the story of Samson. He became very strong, but he falls in love with this Philistine woman named Delilah. She deceives him, 
cuts his hair. God had said, if you ever cut your hair, your strength will be gone. The Philistines capture him. They take out both of his eyes. They, they, they chain him to two pillars in this massive pavilion where they are having a banquet and ridiculing, laughing at him. And Samson at his weakest state, not when he's strong, when he is completely weak, Samson begs to the Lord, Judges chapter 16, verse 28, Oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God. And God gives him strength to push those pillars apart and the building comes down, destroying the enemy. God delights to use weak people. It's out of their weakness, but people of faith, that he becomes strong and does what only God can do, so only God can receive the glory. Then we have Jephthah listed there. Jephthah's another one that many of us don't know about. Some of us remember a very unwise vow he made at the end of a battle. But Jephthah's story that's referencing here, I'm sure, is the story at the beginning. You see, Jephthah grew up in a home where he had two brothers, but the brothers were more important than him. You see, his father and mother had two sons, but his father went out and visited a prostitute, and that's how Jephthah was born. So Jephthah was growing up in the house, but he was the son of a prostitute, and the two brothers who were the part of the mom and dad made fun of him all the time. And we're told in Judges chapter 11 that the other brothers said to him, you will have no inheritance in our father's house. You are the son of another woman. And they drove him out. He fled for his life. He lived in a far-off land. And the Bible says only worthless people collected around him. And God takes a weak person and delivers his nation because God loves to do what only God can do so that only God can receive the glory. We have David, and we say, well, we know David. He became the most powerful king on earth. He subdued nations. So David wasn't a weak person, but remember when Samuel went to, to Jesse's house, and he says, Jesse, bring out your sons. God, God has told me to meet all your sons. Samuel's going to anoint one as king. And all seven of Jesse's sons show up, and Samuel keeps, the Lord says, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. Samuel says, don't you have any others? And Jesse says, well, yeah, there's one more. He's out taking care of the sheep. You know, in Jewish tradition, they have an interesting story. It's Jewish tradition. It's not in the Bible. But in Jewish tradition, they say, you know why he was out taking care of the sheep? Because... Jesse wanted seven sons. Jewish people always felt like seven was the perfect number. Number eight was a mistake, and he sort of messed it up. So let's keep him out of the house as much as possible. I don't know if that's true, but that's Jewish tradition. He was the youngest. God loves to take weak people who walk by faith and do what only God can do so that only God can receive the glory. And then we have Samuel. Samuel became a powerful prophet in Israel. He was also a priest. But Samuel was the son of a woman who couldn't conceive. She came to the tabernacle. She prayed and prayed and prayed, Lord, please help me to have a child. The Lord gives her a child. And the scriptures tell us she lent him back to the Lord. So she leaves him there. She goes back to her home up north. Samuel grows up in the tabernacle with Eli, who was the main priest, 
But Samuel grows up under the, the shadow of Eli's two sons. They were older than Samuel. And the Bible descri- describes them as worthless boys. They did not treat Samuel well. Samuel is the little guy. His family is not even around him. And God chooses to use weakness so that he can show his strength. All the time, over and over again, God delights in using weak and insignificant people who have faith to do mighty, mighty things. In my own family, there's one story where this is so crystal clear. When my parents first went to Africa to serve the Lord, they were, it was the 1950s, and they were in a part, a part of Africa called Congo. 1961, Congo was in tremendous turmoil. It was getting its independence from Belgium, which had been a very, very ruthless colonial power. But as Congo was getting its independence, there were all kinds of different groups within Congo vying for power. They wanted to take over the country. One of those groups in eastern Congo where my family lived took over that eastern portion of the country. They came to my father's hospital where my father was a doctor. They took him prisoner. They said, you're under house arrest with his brother, my uncle, because they were both doctors. They said, you cannot leave. You're going to take care of our soldiers when they, are, when they are wounded. You're going to stay here. That night, my mother, my aunt, one other couple, and all of us kids, six of us little children, four in my family, two of my cousins, got into one vehicle and began at night to try to get out of the country, leaving my dad and my uncle because they were held prisoner. As we started to make our way out, it's a, it's a long story. I won't tell you the whole thing. God miraculously helped us past several rebel roadblocks. But we get to the last one before they could get to Uganda where they thought they would be safe. And at that roadblock, the rebels pulled all of us out of the vehicle. And they counted up how many we were. And they said, we just lost this many soldiers to a group of mercenaries right down the road. And we're going to kill you in place of our people. Each, each family had one little suitcase. They pulled the suitcase out of the car, stepped on all the stuff, started to ridicule my mom, my aunt, and the other couple. There are six of us little kids from the age of nine to one. The oldest one was my sister, nine years old. And she pulls all of us little kids over to the side of the road, and we get in a circle, and we begin to pray. Six little children between the age of one and nine. The rebels are looking over there saying, what are they doing? What are they doing? And my my mother said they're praying to our God. It made the rebels angrier. They began getting really, 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 really upset. But then God began to work. And they forced the local governor to give us permission to leave the country and said, get out. You see, God takes the prayer of six little children. I was three and a half. How would God hear prayers of little kids. He loves to take weakness, but faith, and show himself to be strong. Brothers and sisters, you may feel today like you are nobody. You may feel like you have no significance, but God loves to take weak people who trust him, and he shows himself strong in their weakness so that he can do what only he can do, so that only he will receive the glory. 
1 John chapter 5, verse 4 tells us this, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. It's faith. We need to trust in God. We need to walk with God. Whatever you're facing today, trust in God. It's not our wisdom. It's not our strategies. It's not best practice that God is looking for. He's looking for our trust in Him. God delights in using weak and insignificant people to show Himself strong through their faith. But God also does what only God can do through people of faith. And so in these following verses, He doesn't give any names of people. He just talks about what He has done. So He leaves their names out. Look at verse 33. These people conquered kingdoms. Now, we might think of Joshua, who led the people of Israel into the promised land and conquered kingdoms. We might think of David, who God used to conquer many, many kingdoms. They conquered kingdoms for God, but not because they were strong, because God was. They enforced justice. One of the people that come to my mind, God doesn't list them, but maybe it's one of those people, was a prophet named Amos. Amos was a shepherd. Nobody significant. God called him to serve him, and Amos went to the king of Israel. And this is what Amos preaches, Amos chapter 5, verse 11. Because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of, of grain from him, you've built for your house, you've built for your, yourself houses hewn of stone, but you will not dwell in them. You've planted pleasant vineyards. You will not drink their wine. Amos a simple shepherd boy sent by God to speak to the powerful people of his day to bring justice to the poor. We're given the same mandate, every single one of us. Micah writes in chapter 6, verse 8, he has told you, O man, what's good, what, what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. Brothers and sisters, our world is crying for justice and kindness. That's what we are called to do. That's what we are called to exemplify. And we are to do it as we walk humbly with our God. As we keep reading here in verses 33 and 34, these people obtained promises. You think of Nehemiah in the Old Testament who was a cupbearer for a king and he ends up going to Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls and he trusted God's promise to provide everything he needed and God did and God protected him in the face of many enemies. They stopped the mouths of lions. We think of Daniel who was thrown into a lion's den and the lions didn't touch him. Daniel was there because he was faithful to God and would not stop praying. Or they quenched the power of fire. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they would not bow to the idol that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon put up. And the king said, if you don't bow, I'm going to throw you into the, into the fiery furnace. And this is their response. They said, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the, the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, even if God decides to let us die there, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And you know the story. They're thrown into this furnace. The men who carried them close to the furnace were burned just by getting close to it. The ropes that they were bound with burned off their hands and their legs, but they began to walk around. And as the, those three men walked around, there was a fourth with them. Was it Jesus? I don't know. Was it an angel? I don't know. It was somebody from heaven. 
And they walked out of that furnace totally unsinged. I love what Oswald Chambers wrote years ago, faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. So often we're just saying, God, free me, take care of me, get me out of this problem. That's not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. That's what these men said. Our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow. There are some things, Oswald Chambers said, that are only learned in a fiery furnace that we have to walk through. We're told that they escaped from the edge of the shore. You think of people like Elisha. Elisha was a prophet of the Lord, and the enemy, the Assyrian army, hates the fact that Elisha always knows where they're going to go. And so they surround him, and Elisha's servants looks out at the hills around their place, and it's just filled with the enemy surrounding them. They've got no way to get out, and he is terrified. Elisha says to him, 2 Kings 6, 16 and 17, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, please open his eyes so that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes and of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. These were God's armies inside a ring inside of the enemy's armies, invisible unless God opened their eyes. First John chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I've told you so many stories of times in Uganda where rebels came down and surrounded our house and killed our neighbors the kinds of things that happened on October 7 in Israel is what they did to our neighbors. And yet our house was untouched, and I have to believe that unseen to our eyes, God had surrounded our house. There's no other explanation. Judges become mighty in war, and they put foreign armies to fight, flight. Why? because God likes to do through weak people what only he can do so only he can receive the glory. Listen to this quote from George Mueller, a man who lived by faith every single day of his life. He said this, faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There's no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. Isn't that beautiful? Faith begins where our power ends because God loves to do what only he can do so only he can receive the glory. And then verse 35, one little phrase. We're going to pick up with verse 35, the second part of it next week and read down through the end of the paragraph. But women received back their dead by resurrection. This is really in some ways the culmination of it all. The thing that we fear the most, that death, that it's, it's, it's that thing that's in front of every one of us, a result of our sin. God said you will die because you have sinned. It, it's fearful for people. And who is it? Women. Their names are not given. We know of at least two examples. There may be more that God knows names of. We don't know. There's the widow of Zarephath given to us in the Old Testament. First Kings chapter 17. She lived near Sidon, today modern-day Turkey. She was a Gentile. She was not Jewish. When there was a famine in the land, Elijah 
went to her place to find some food and she had a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. She was preparing her last meal for her and her son and Elijah said, will you please give me something to eat? She said, this is all I've got and then we're going to die. He said, will you please give it to me? She fed him the last food she had and then God replenished her flour and her oil all the way through that famine. She never ran out. God met her need because she met the need of God's servant. But the heartache came later when her son died. That meant, who cares, God? You can give me flour. You can give me oil. You can feed me every single day in a famine. But if my son dies, there's no hope. But when her son died, Elijah prayed, and her son returned to life. Women received their children through resurrection. Elisha, who was the prophet who followed Elijah, he went at a time when he was being chased and when he was in a difficult, difficult time to stay in the home of another couple. She's called a woman of Shunammite. She was not poor like the other one. She was wealthy. Her husband had a lot of money, but this was her problem. Her husband was very old, and she could not conceive. And as Elijah stayed in their home, and they provided for her, his needs, Elijah prayed, and he said to her, God has revealed to me, this time next year you will have a child. She did. She gave birth to a child, and she was elated, and that child grew, and he, Elisha continued to go to their home, and they would take care of him often. Elisha watched this child grow. The mom and dad were thrilled, and then one day, he dies, and Elisha is nowhere around. And this woman does not begin to mourn. She does not wrap the body up in a, in a burial cloth. She immediately sets out to find Elisha. And when she finds him, she brings him home. And we're told that Elisha prays for that son, and he returned to life. God loves to take weak people who have faith and do what only he can do so that only he can receive the glory. The faith of women overcame the greatest of all enemies, death itself. Are you here this morning and you feel like, I don't even know if I matter to God. God is so huge. God made the universe. He didn't just make this world. He made everything that is, the galaxies and the galaxies and the galaxies. And God controls, we're told God controls the nations. And ultimately, he, Jesus will return and, and he will finally bring peace to this war-torn world. But who am I? If that's how you feel, you're in a good place. If you will just trust God to do with your life what will bring him the greatest glory, have faith in him. That little phrase that's tucked in the middle of this passage, they were made strong out of weakness because of their faith. God wants to do that through you and for you. He delights in using weak and insignificant people so that he can do what only he can do so that only he will receive the glory. Lord Jesus, this morning we come in hearts of thanksgiving for examples 
of people that you used who were insignificant and overlooked by others, but you chose to use them so that the world will know that this is you at work, not them. And Lord, so many of them, their names aren't even given. And there are many of us in this room who feel like our names probably are not known by many people at all. We are insignificant. Our lives probably don't matter much at all. And yet to you, our name is known. And you simply ask us to trust you, to allow you as we live by faith to do what only you can do so that only you can receive the glory. Would you please do that, we pray, in us. We've asked this in Jesus' name. Amen.